Hello and welcome to One for the Road with me, Sober Dave. I'm going to be talking to some incredible guests over the next few weeks, all of whom have made the decision to look at their relationship with alcohol and take steps towards a positive change. My guests are all at different points in their journey, but all have powerful and uplifting stories to share. And that's why I hope you find each episode a valuable source of inspiration and insight. Today's guest on One for the Road is a recovering addict, a domestic abuse survivor and a published author. She works with fellow survivors of addiction and trauma to unearth their inner strength through the power of writing. I really love recording this one and I find her so inspirational. So please welcome the lovely Cece Reagan. Hi Cece, welcome to One for the Road. Thank you so much for joining me today. Um, We spoke briefly on Zoom the other day and I'm really fascinated in your story, especially for someone so young. So thank you for joining me today. How are you? Thank you. Yeah, I'm good. I'm really, really excited to do this. Good. So we were talking about your upbringing and I always love to start right from the beginning. So can you tell the listeners all about that and what you've done since really? Yeah, so I grew up as a child of an alcoholic. Um, my my dad was an active addiction, still is as far as I know, but we haven't spoken in quite a long time. Um, and I just sort of grew up being really familiar with alcoholism and drinking and what it looked like. And, uh, you know, my mom would make excuses for my dad a lot of times when he couldn't show up at things, um, you know, like a family cookout or something like that. If he was too hungover, she would lie and make excuses and say things like, oh, he's just working or he's just sick or something like that. And obviously, when you're a child, you can't really contextualize this stuff. You just think that it's normal. So I grew up with the idea that you could drink and sort of do whatever. And then as long as everything looked good on the outside and you still showed up for church on Sundays growing up in the Bible Belt, um, then everything was okay. Uh, and so growing up with that sort of mentality of like, okay, well, you can drink and do whatever as long as you make everything look good on the outside, I think kind of set me up for failure when I started my own drinking career at 14. So um, is that when you started drinking, 14 years old? That's quite a standard age, actually, the more I talk to people. Yeah, I think so. A lot of the people that I speak to uh, have a similar thing that they started drinking when they were pretty young as well. I mean, I think over in the UK, like because you can drink when you're 18, it's less of a big deal. But when I think you think about 14 years old and then you can only legally drink when you're 21 in the States, that's quite a big difference. Yeah. That was a little bit wild. Yeah. What was your drinking like, though, when you started? I immediately drank seeking like oblivion. What happened to precipitate it, like a bunch of things sort of happened right in a row. So my um, my parents had gotten divorced when I was like 
12. Um, well, they had separated then, but anyways, it was like a whole bunch. So there was all of that. And then all like alcoholism and abuse from my dad. But then um, my mom got diagnosed with a terminal illness. My uncle, um, who was a youth pastor at our local church, my dad's brother that I was really, really close with, he passed away super suddenly. And my mom got diagnosed with a terminal illness. And I just had no way <laughs> to process what was going on with me. Obviously, like I just said, I just learned to make everything look good from the outside and then lie about it. That was like, that was my coping strategy. I had no tools. So I just drank. That's what I saw my dad do. It seemed to work for him. And the first time that I ever got drunk, I was at a friend's house. Like her parents were out of town. We like planned it out. We were going to like wild out like her older friends and like her sister's friends came over and I drank like, beers I drank gin like because we ran out of beer and I wasn't done like I just immediately was like into it drank to get like absolutely obliviated and I did and then that's just how I drank for another 10 years oh my god that sounds so familiar because I I was the same I I did have a trauma as well when I was 14 and uh, that just fixed the problem straight away it was immediate and you know, like I've often spoken about, um, I, I've never had an issue with gambling or online shopping or any, anything really, but alcohol, it was like, oh my God, it, it felt like it was made for me to, to just numb everything out. And it did it straight away. And it's, you know, like you say 10 years, mom was 40 years. So you've got out at such a good time. Yeah, I got sober at 24, which looking back now is wild. <laughs> but, you know, I, the more people are, there's a guy that's been on my podcast called Charlie Owen. There's Katie McNichol, this sober girl. There's Jack from Tova. You know, there's Millie Gooch. There's so many people younger now that are not drinking. They're choosing not to drink. I find it in, incredible and amazing. You know, that there's this new generation coming through that are really seeing it for what it is. They're more health conscious and aware of the dangers of alcohol now. And it's fantastic. I know it's really amazing to see. I love this. Like I love seeing younger people like choosing a a sober lifestyle. I like the people like the whole sober curious movement. People who are like, well, what is life like without drinking? Because it's so ingrained in our culture. Um, definitely in the UK, like the sort of pub culture and stuff like that. But it's the same in the States and the whole like wine mom thing. And you deserve it. You've earned it like unwind with a gin and tonic or whatever. Like it's so part of life. It's so normalized that to take a step back from it and actually question it and like, actually, do I need to do that? Is it healthy? Is it good for me? Is like, it's huge. And more and more people are doing it. And it's amazing to see. Yeah, it is. So do you find that like, because you grew up with that, you see that as having played a huge part of your drinking? Because I talk to a lot of children of alcoholics and it like affects me deeply because I don't like the word alcoholic, but on paper, you know, the amount I was drinking, that's the bracket or the label I fit into. But people I've spoken to say they, they notice the, the look or the change of voice or the things they used to do that they were like basically highly sensitive and tuned in to their parents drinking. Did you find yeah. that? Yeah, definitely. It was, I learned how to sort of walk on eggshells in a way. Um, my, like what I did, I felt like 
my actions were responsible for like whatever my dad did. You know, if I like did something wrong and stressed him out or upset him or didn't live up to whatever his expectations were in some way, then if he was upset, like that was my fault. So I learned to sort of, like I said, walk on eggshells and be super aware of tiny, like almost imperceptible changes in his behavior because I needed to like protect myself and my sister and my, my mom. So if I could tune in to what was going on with him, then I could change my behavior accordingly. And then maybe he wouldn't get wasted and get mad at us. That didn't really work because it's not, (laughs) that's not really the case, but it set up the whole rest of my life uh, of doing that. I mean, I've been in like two abusive relationships now in like two different countries. And a lot of that is like a direct reflection on how I grew up and seeing the way that people reacted and thinking that my actions were responsible for that and being highly sensitive and empathetic in that way that I was just so attuned with people that I took on their shit to be my responsibility. And yeah, between that and the drinking, it absolutely set the tone for, you know, the rest of my life up until I was able to quit finally. I mean, a lot of it is how you feel about yourself. So do you feel that that's why you were led towards the kind of people that you were in these abusive relationships? I think that definitely is part of it. I mean, if you don't necessarily think that you deserve better, then you'll sort of accept whatever. If you have no sort of frame of reference of what a healthy relationship should look like, then of course you're going to accept far less. I would say the first, like my first abusive relationship, I was like 16 when we got together. He was 25. You know, I really liked him and I felt so special that he liked me too. And it started to change just like little bits, you know, you get more controlling and it would, um, but also he like, he was older so he could buy my liquor, you know, so it made it like easier to access the drink as well. So it was like so closely entwined. But I was with him for almost seven years um, and I almost lost my life in that relationship. I like barely got out. So I I think that was more I didn't really know any better. I was so young. uh, And when you're that age, you think, you know, everything. Plus, he could get my alcohol for me. But then this last one, we were in like a long distance relationship. He was like a friend of the family. Uh, We got married. We were married for almost four years. And, you know, I was completely isolated over here. I didn't know anybody but him when I moved. And I, when we first got together, I was still in active addiction. He knew my family. You know what I mean? It was so like, so involved and so like deeply woven. You know, I knew him, like I met him online when I was like 14 years old. He sort of like really got in there and he wasn't, it wasn't the same kind of abuse. So it was more difficult to recognize because there's there's one thing when somebody's like punching walls next to your head or like throwing things at you and screaming at you that's like very obvious but other abuse is so much more insidious like the control and the emotional manipulation and the gaslighting and things like that and even though I'd already been in an abusive relationship and I had like a year and a half of sobriety when we got married or whatever like I still didn't have all the tools. I didn't know myself that well yet. And I didn't really 
see what to look out for. I couldn't really see those warning signs. But when it comes right down to it, the reason that I left both of those relationships is because I realized what was going on and that I did deserve better. So I suppose in some way you're right. Like part of the reason that I got into both of those relationships was like the lack of self-confidence. But I think that's because I didn't know myself at all. And that's because of the addiction and drinking for 10 years since I was a child and like literally not knowing who I was. And also um, no consistent role model growing up as well. Mm. You know, if you were constantly worrying about your mom and your family and whatever, maybe that's why you went for the older man in the beginning, which was another layer of it, you know. It's fascinating, you know, and also what you say about um, it changed over a period of time and that's what the relationship with alcohol is like that's why I often compare it to being in a toxic relationship because it does change yeah because you're always chasing like the beginning it's like you're you're chasing the honeymoon stage like when you get in a relationship with somebody who is abusive they're not horrible from the beginning Otherwise, you never get in a relationship with them. They love bomb you and they're like wonderful and they like take you places or buy you gifts or whatever the thing is that they do, however they do it. And then you're they can they start to show their true colors. But you think who they are is like the honeymoon phase person and you're chasing that person. And with drinking, it's exactly the same. It's like, well, in the beginning, it wasn't destroying my life and my relationships. It was just fun. And you're like always chasing that. But like if you have a problem with alcohol, it would never be that again. And that's the thing. It, it, that's why it's hard to get out of because sometimes it feels easier to be in. You, you put up with things, don't you? Which yeah. is the denial. And especially when you're drinking, you block out the emotions and that. And then half the time the next day, you're getting over how you feel. So you're not really having those authentic, clear thoughts about what you're in. And it's the hamster wheel where you're going, you're drinking off the back of that, off the back. And then it takes ages to actually really see it for what it is. And some people don't ever get there. But for you, was it 24 or did you try stopping before that? Probably started like trying to get sober when I was 23, but like was able to maintain any sort of sobriety at 24. Yeah. And how, how was that for you? Because you've already been through such a lot. So there's a lot of emotional stuff to deal with including stopping yeah it was really hard um because like you said I had been through so much and I had never dealt with any of it because I always just drank instead so like I never processed the loss of my mother or what happened to me with my ex or like tried to come to terms with the kind of person that my dad was like none of that had happened (laughs) So when I finally was like trying to get sober and I would get, you know, any sort of small period of time of sobriety, then all of a sudden I was feeling those feelings as if they were brand new. You know, it felt like I had just lost my mom, that I had just gotten out of that relationship, that like specific instance of abuse had just happened. And it was so much, (laughs) it was so much to deal with. I didn't want to, and I didn't know how to just sit in my feelings. I didn't even know how to identify my feelings. I couldn't tell the difference between like excitement and anxiety, for example. I I didn't have words for for how I was feeling. And it was scary. It it was scary to think of, I'm never going to drink again. And I'm 23, 24 years old. 
and I have all this stuff that I have to deal with. And I don't know how I knew that continuing to drink would kill me. Like I was absolutely aware of it, but not drinking felt like a death sentence too. Oh, that's really interesting. You must have had incredible strength to be able to um, deal with that. I mean, people say that, and I suppose I thought a lot, uh, you know, especially mourning my mom and stuff. I, I thought a lot about her. Obviously, when she died, I was 19 and I was still in active addiction and I was in that abusive relationship. And I knew she was really worried about me. And I carried a lot of guilt around that for a long time, which I, I don't have anymore, thankfully. Um, but I would think about her being sick. Uh, you know, she was in a wheelchair for a little while. And then for the last couple of years of her life, she was in a hospital bed. And it was so awful to watch her waste away like that. But she stayed who she was, which is like the most beautiful, giving, like shiny, loving, compassionate person. Like my mom was so <laughs> wonderful. And she went through so much in her life, like being married to my dad for almost 20 years and like all of the shit that she had to deal with. But she stayed the same. Like even when she was sick, she still had a smile on her face. She still wanted all her friends to come visit her and like tell them, like tell her what was going on in their lives. She wanted, she didn't want the relationship to change because she was sick. And she was the same way with me. And one time uh, she told me, I can't remember what we were talking about or what had brought it up. Uh, but you know, people will ask a lot when things happen, like why me or like, why do bad things happen to good people? And she just looked at me and she said, Cece, why not me? And I'm like, damn, (laughs) you got me. So in early recovery, I would think about that. I would think about my mom and I would think about what she had said to me. And it wasn't about like, why me? Why is life so hard? It was like, well, why not me? Like I'm no more or less special than anyone else. Like this has to happen to someone. Why not me? And it was more of like, just trying to find acceptance, like from a place of love, but like true acceptance is just like, this is the way it is. It's not necessarily okay or not okay, but it's like just the truth and trying to accept that. That's kind of looking back what the journey was like. I couldn't have said that at the time, but I would say rather than any sort of like strength or willpower or inner fortitude or whatever, it was just like, well, fucking well, like, I guess we'll deal with this now. That's such a powerful line, isn't it? That's like that's life changing for you yeah. to believe in yourself and actually think, well, actually, why not me? Like we all go around telling ourselves these stories. I quite often talk to people about reframing how they speak to themselves. Yeah, you know, like I won't be able to do that. You know, I w- I will be able to do that, and I'm gonna do it. You know, like the power of conversation to ourselves is so, so do you think hearing your mum say that sort of changed your direction? Because what I want to talk about soon is how you've turned things around, which is incredible. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, I do think, I do think that that changed me. I think so much of what I went through with my mom when she was sick had such a long lasting impact, probably more than I even realize now, because we were so close. And the little things that she would say and do like even things that were super painful at the time. But like, you know, bathing her, or like, feeding her through her feeding tube and stuff, it was like, awful, but also so beautiful for me to be able to care for her. In the same way that she cared for me, like when I was a kid and I'm the oldest of my two sisters, I had 19 years with her. Like there's 
so many other things to be grateful for. And still like to this day, I will get random messages from people like I knew your mom. She was amazing. Like, you know, good on you or whatever. Or will like tell me a story about her. So much of, of that, it was like the foundation that she laid when I was a kid and when she was sick and stuff has affected me so much in recovery. And she never even saw me in recovery. So yeah, I think that definitely set the tone. As much stuff as I got from my dad, I got a lot from my mom too. She's looking down on you now. Don't you worry about that. She, she can see what you're doing now. It's such a lovely story, honestly. So you stopped drinking and you was living then in Newcastle? Yeah. So when I originally got sober, I was in Newcastle, but it was like temporarily. So I was only here for like six months just to sort of test it out to see if I wanted to make the official move to be with my then partner, now yeah. ex-husband. Yeah. So I got sober in Newcastle, which was a bit of like um, out of the frying pan into the fire kind of thing. because. Yeah. Like alcohol is so much more readily accessible here. There's like the pub culture thing that I mentioned it before. So it was really different. And obviously just being in another country, not knowing anybody was like terrifying. I had no idea what to do, but basically I, I got on the plane like 16 days sober or something like that. Absolutely white knuckling it. Uh, and then got to Newcastle and was like, if I have this opportunity to move to a completely different country and totally change my life and be whoever I want to be, and I don't seize this opportunity, then like, what is the point of even being alive? That's like literally how I felt and how seriously I took it. And because I didn't know anybody, I had no, like I had no other option than to just put myself out there and try to find my people and like just adopt people. Like you're my friend now. (laughs) We have to be friends because I don't know anybody. And a few of those people that I met are like my best friends today. Um, But yeah, then after that six months, I was back in North Carolina and then made the official move to Newcastle. So I've sort of done recovery in the uh, UK and the US. So how did you find these people like online then or? Yeah, online. And I went to like, I went to meetings, like in person meetings. Um, That's what I knew about because that's what my dad did. (laughs) I wasn't aware of a lot of the online communities and other support and stuff like that. I just, I just emulated what I knew, (laughs) which is what I've always done. And I, yeah. And I just put myself out there and, and became friends with strangers, which was scary. And they're still your friends now. They're your best friends. Yeah. My best friends. (laughs) Yeah. And I can see why as well. You have such yeah, amazing energy, honestly, amazing energy. Oh. <laughs> so then what did you do? So so you wind up with the first few days, met these people, mm-hmm. and what came from that? I love these kind of stories because I know what happened to me, but everyone's heard mine, so it's lovely to hear <laughs> yours. Well, it was so random. So I, go, I found this, like, random meeting, and I was, like, right around the corner from where I was staying, and I was like, all right, I'm going to go. <laughs> petrified yeah I barely I mean I was in the land of the Geordies like yeah. I like, could barely understand the accent like oh, wait, can I, I still like can't that. understand them now <laughs> every once in a while I get a taxi driver and I'm like mate <laughs> I have no idea what you're saying mm. um, but yeah I just sort of like went and I walk into the meeting and everybody's just sort of sitting there and it wasn't my first meeting like ever but it was my first meeting in a foreign country uh, and I, you know, people were like, Hey, blah, blah, blah. They were really friendly. Like asked me my name. And then obviously as soon as I started talking, they were like, you are foreign. Uh, and they wanted to talk to me about their, you know, trip to 
Orlando or whatever. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I went to the States one time and I went to Florida. I'm like, no kidding. Uh, <laughs> but it was like very much that conversation. Everybody was super friendly and there was a lady there. Uh, and she said, there is a women's meeting at this certain place on this day. I'll give you my number. If you can get to this metro station at this time, I'll pick you up there. Like, I'll pick you up from there and I'll take you to the meeting. And I was like, okay. And it, like, I did the thing. I like took her phone number and showed up at the place and got into the vehicle with this random stranger and went to this women's meeting. And that's where I met <laughs> like so many people who, like I said, I'm still friends with now. Um, and people that have sort of come and gone and stuff like that. But that really set the tone. It was like, okay, you put yourself out there and you go to the thing and then you follow through. You committed to doing this thing with this person. So do that. And it was very much like that. I would like make plans with people. So I felt like I had some accountability to show up and do the stuff. And the more people I got to know, the more people that I would have to hide stuff from if I was trying to be some type of way. <laughs> so I really sort of like set that infrastructure for myself of like, you're not going to get away with it <laughs> because I'm like too smart sometimes for my own good. And like, you know, I had stuff and I didn't want to do that. I really wanted to change. Yeah. And, and I mean, it doesn't matter how you do it either. Like there's so many options now. It's interesting. Mm -hmm. You talk to older people and they only, I mean, I've got friends who have been 10 years sober and there was then even just the AA route, but there's so many different online communities now and groups and, even like sober walking groups and there, there's so much out there, you know, and it, it goes to show how much this sober world is advancing in such a short period. I mean, I've been sober, what, three and a half years now, and it's, it's so much different from when I stopped as well. Yeah, the way that things are changing, like we said earlier with younger people and like and social media and stuff, like you said, all the different sort of online things. There's so many like free Facebook groups and there's like more like paid communities where it's like, you know, people are vetted and stuff like there's so many more options now. And I don't think there's like a right or wrong way I look at um like recovery or sobriety like I identify as in recovery but like whatever it is for you is like as so much more like holistic it's not about just like go to the meetings and do the steps and do things like it can be whatever you want it to be but like the foundations are like honesty and community and if you have people around you and you can tell the fucking truth about what's actually going on with you like then you're good the rest of it doesn't matter it can look like whatever you want Oh my God, it's so refreshing to hear. And you know, like I hold events. I've, by the time this comes out, I'd have had my next event. But I've got musicians, like world known musicians, playing at my event free of charge because they want to give back to me for helping them. In some way, I don't even know how I have helped them. But it's, <laughs> you know, it's such a lovely, lovely vibe to the sober community that it's almost like everyone's like had a rebirth in a way that um they're so positive and giving and open with their hearts that's what I find that's so true like being with other sober people is like being with family even if you've never met each other like you know about someone's childhood trauma before you know like what they do for a living yeah. <laughs> I uh I'm a member of an artist collective called Artists in Recovery and I do like poetry and collage. And we had this show like in January and somebody had come up to me who was like, who was also in uh, recovery and he had like sort of relapsed over lockdown, which obviously like a lot of people did. 
Uh, it was really rough for so many people. Um, and he just came up to me and he was talking to me and, and giving me like really specific details about these things that had transpired during his relapse, which obviously I won't go into here, but we can all imagine. We know <laughs> if you know, you know, yeah. um, but, but the, my boyfriend was with me and he's like a normie as I call them. He's like, he just can drink like a regular person and have like two drinks and be fine. And I'm like, what even is the point of that? I don't understand. Anyways, <laughs> <laughs> and, and we were leaving and he was like, do you know that guy? And I was like, no. And he was like, he was telling you like a bunch of stuff. And I was like, yeah, I know. That's just how it is in recovery. Like, I'm just so used to it. Like, that's just what we're like. We're like, oh, you're like me. Cool. Let's talk about some real stuff. It's just, it's not fake at all. It's so open because I think like once you've seen that far down and what like alcohol is doing to you and you work so hard to get better, you're like, of course I should celebrate this and be honest about it. Mm. And when you see somebody else who's in the same boat as you, you're like, cool, we're automatically friends. It's the alignment, isn't it? Mm. And uh, you never meet a sober person who regrets becoming sober. I know. Uh, yeah. Didn't you post that on Instagram or something? Probably. <laughs> I read that and I was like, <laughs> I was like, I love that. Cause it's so true. I mean, in like six and a half years or whatever that I've like seen people kind of like come in and out and like find recovery and relapse or, or whatever. Like I've never met a single person who's like, yeah, I'm so like, I wish I had never gotten sober. <laughs> Yeah. When you break it down, there's no reason to feel like that because it, it is like what I said earlier, it's like being in a narcissistic relationship, isn't it? It's like, it grabs you uh, and mm-hmm. won't let you go and then stalks you after because I quite, well, I relate to that mm-hmm. because it's hard enough getting out of the relationship and then you have a clean break. And that's why I've always said, you know, about moderation is virtually impossible in my books. But moderating is like sleeping with your partner at the weekend. So you're not actually, uh, you know, ever finishing a relationship. But sometimes, you know, with um, whatever you want to call it, the wine witch or the beer monster, um, it lurks around in the background. Mm-hmm. And that's why when it sees you have a weak moment, it will be on you like a ton of bricks. It'd be like, okay, all right. You're weak now. I've been waiting for this. And it could mm-hmm. be years that it'll wait there because it's the most patient beast in the world, you know. And that's why you always have to be mindful, never be complacent and go, do you know what? I've got this now. I've cracked this. Because as soon as you say that, it come out of the bloody box and mm-hmm. it'd be wallop straight on you. <laughs> I'm right there with you. I think it's so important. You know, you see people that have like, I've seen people with like 22 years, 24 years, Mm. even upwards of 30 years relapse. Like you just can never take it for granted. And, you know, obviously I did like AA. So, you know, you get all the things like one day at a time, blah, blah, blah. But like, you know, people say that like things become cliche because they're true and they're said often enough to become a cliche. Like it is true. (laughs) But you know what? You you can look at that in life anyway you know my mantra is that if you have a bad day i had one the other day i, I was going to a funeral and uh I, I put my brief i had a suitcase one of those little flight suitcases behind the car 
This bloke called me over to ask me something. I, I'd already hung my suit up in the car. I walked around the front, got in the car, drove off. An hour and a half later, I looked around to see if my case was there. And I thought, oh, no. But my shoes were in the case, right? Oh, and then no. I thought, the funeral's in an hour and a half, and I haven't got any shoes to wear my suit. And and honestly, the knock-on effect from that day was to, everything went wrong. But the next day I got up and I started again. It's a bit like the Etch-A-Sketch thing where you wipe the screen and it's clear and you start again. And, and, mm. and it, you know, I look at it as the one day at a time we've given up booze because you can manage that. Even like in the beginning, I say to people like, treat an hour at a time sometimes if you've got a more dependent drinking thing you know mm-hmm. but gradually you build up the house of cards and you the more you've done the least you want to kick them over that's true i mean it does sort of like compound you're like well i've done it for this long i guess i can get through today like if i didn't drink yesterday or if i didn't drink when this happened then i could definitely get through this but i also like the idea that we all have the same 24 hours i think there can be like a hierarchy you know like i have more time so therefore I know more like, uh, you know, like the whole older and wiser thing. And I don't think that's necessarily true. I've never like heard anybody speak, you know, who had like a, maybe even a day or like a couple of days versus somebody who had like years and years that I didn't get something from mm. what they said that didn't have something valuable to say. So I like to think about it that way too. Cause I, that, no, I, to me. I love that. And everyone's an individual. You know, mm-hmm. and that might say more about the person rather than what they're doing if they're like that. You know, yeah. like <laughs> they might be a naturally negative person anyway, even if they've given up the booze or not. You know, so I love that. It's a real fresh outlook towards it. And I, you know, people say to me, Oh, I'm only on day five. And I say, You're on day five. Could you imagine this like a month ago that you would go five days without drinking? You know, yeah. you've got to take the wins. And every single day, be grateful for it. Absolutely. I, I talked to someone this morning who had three days, bless him, like had the jitters and everything. And he's like, I'm on day three. I can do it. And I'm like, yes, you can do it. Like three days is huge. And I tend to celebrate like those like a few days and get way more excited about those than like somebody who's celebrating like a couple year milestone because the beginning, like those first few days of like white knuckling it and the shakes and the whole thing is whew. Like that takes so much courage. It really does. And as I say, the more you do and the more you reach the community and realize you're not alone, it is all these valuable tools in the toolbox are so essential. So do you want to tell everyone what you've done since you've given up drinking? I mean, poetry. I published a, my first poetry anthology, um, all about like my experience in addiction and recovery they're all poems that I wrote some like while I was drunk (laughs) like trying to get sober some like in recovery like when I was sort of in and out and then you know a couple like just being in early sobriety and just like what it felt like for me um I've obviously moved to another country I've been married and divorced (laughs) uh I've lost some people really close to me I've started two businesses, like one in financial services and another helping like fellow survivors of addiction, abuse and trauma to heal using writing, like journaling and poetry as a vehicle for doing that, because that is what allowed me to maintain any sobriety and like writing is what saved my life. Uh, So it's really exciting to be able to kind of pay it forward. And it, it doesn't necessarily make what we've been through worth it. 
But I think probably you can agree because obviously what you do is so similar is like spreading the the word about it, like spreading awareness and trying to like end the stigma of like alcoholics are just like, you know, people under bridges drinking out of paper bags. Like that's, that's not what it is. It's really important work to be doing. And like I said, it's not that it sort of makes everything worth it, but if I can give the things that I've been through and like all that pain and trauma a purpose, and if I can help like just one other person, then, you know, maybe it is a little bit worth it. I think it's more than a little bit worth it. I mean, like you've at a young age, you're 30 years old now. You've <laughs> been through a hell of a lot, you know, um, growing up and your dad um, and then your mum dying and you being in active addiction and turning that around and now creating this to help other people. At, you know, just 30 is amazing. And there's some parts of me, that's, that's a real regret that I didn't do this earlier, but then I do believe that I wasn't ready and it's, yeah. I'm such a believer in the universe. And when I stopped was my time and then I can use my knowledge and experience to help people in all areas. You know, like I, one of my mantras is you, you're not too old ever to change your life. You know, I was 54 and I have people come up to me now and they say, when you said that to me, it made me really think. And now I'm 61 and I'm two years sober, you know? Wow. And that is so, like, it It blew me away. And I thought, God, I just said one line, a bit like your mum, what she said to you. Why not mm-hmm. you? And it's that light bulb moment. And this woman, she gave me such a hug. And I thought, God, it's just not her. It's the ripple effect it has on the family, on the kids, on the grandkids, you know, on the marriage, on the uh, so many different things mm-hmm. by taking one thing out of the equation. And when you look at it like that, it's all it is, one thing, you remove it. Yeah, I know. It's it's really interesting because I was obviously been thinking this morning, you know, in like preparation to come on here with you. And I was thinking about, you know, the fact that like 24, 23, the idea of like never drinking again felt like so insurmountable. And it, it felt like I was cutting off like a really important part of my life for whatever reason. It, it felt like I was going to be missing so much that by letting it go, I was like, I was losing so much. But actually, it was the opposite. Because as soon as I stopped, it was like the whole world opened up. I mean, I'm almost 31. Like I never even thought that I'd live this long. You know, I wanted to get out of that small town. And I did like, I had my little flat by the sea and my little puppy and like, my businesses and I help other people. I'm like, I'm like, (laughs) I thought it was a death sentence. I thought it was like the end of my life. But it was the beginning of so many beautiful, incredible things. And it is quite the opposite, isn't it? When you look at alcohol, because we've got all these false beliefs that we're drip fed in our uh, growing up and uh, socializing and our own thoughts as well where I mean I remember when I was drinking and I think you know what Um, if I don't drink tonight I won't be able to sleep I mean that was one I won't be able to go to an event without drinking because I'm going to be boring Mm-hmm. You know, there there were so many fake beliefs around alcohol. And as you just said there, it's quite often the opposite. 
And your journaling and your writing is so important because if you write down, I always say to people who come to me for help, I say, write a line down the middle of the page, right? And then write down the benefits of alcohol in your life. Not what you think society tells you, but in your life, how does it benefit you, right? And then on the right hand side, write down all the negative impacts that alcohol has in your life. And you find that you've written six, seven times more on the right hand side of the column than on the left. And when you see it in front of you, it's a real eye opener because it's like mm-hmm. smacks you in the face and you're like, bloody hell, that's what, why am I doing it? Yeah, but that's exactly like, that's what writing gives you is like, I call it like the gift, gift of objectivity. It gives you perspective. You can't see the stuff. It's all floating around in your head. It's all like willy nilly. You can't like pin it down in any way. But if you can like sit there and literally it's like downloading it from your brain, (laughs) you like remove it from your head and put it onto the page and you can look at it and see it for exactly what it is. I think it's so powerful to be able to do that. I mean, even to like write letters, like I've written like letters to like my addiction before, like angry letters, just like getting it, like just getting it all out and then like burned them. And it was so... It was such a release. You know, I've written letters to my mom and stuff since I've been in recovery and things. And been like, my life is different now, blah, blah, blah. Like, this is what stuff it like. It just allows you to take everything from your brain, put it on the page, see it for what it is and let it go in a way that like nothing else I've tried has been able to do. I worked with someone the other day and she's four years sober and she feels stuck. She mm-hmm. doesn't she's in no man's land. So I suggested that she did a Dear Alcohol letter, right, from the beginning. And as you said at the beginning of this interview, that when, I, like, example, when I first started drinking, it's like my first relationship was a school sweetheart and everything's amazing. You, you can't wait. Back in the day then, we didn't have mobile phones, right? So we used to write love letters to each other and we sit there listening to records on the record deck. And I would, I remember one night I wrote down all the words to this Chicago song band called Chicago. And I put it in the envelope and I put it through a letterbox so she could read them and all these things. Right. But gradually with alcohol, it changes you, you get more reliant on it and it knows it, it becomes more controlling. Uh, and starts dominating you and in a way indirectly starts telling you what to do doesn't it because subliminally you're not in control of it you know um yeah so i said to this woman like you're four <laughs> years sober that is amazing and have you written this letter and she said no so i said it could be half a page it could be 10 pages but get it all out of your brain And then afterwards, sit with it for half an hour. You can put it in your bedside drawer. You could post it to no one, just a blank envelope. Or you could burn the bloody thing, right? Mm. The next day, she sent me a photograph, and it was on on a fire pit. And she said, oh, my God, I feel so much better. Like, you have no idea. (laughs) And And that is the power. And it's almost like unlocking that key, isn't it, where you're stuck emotionally with it and it it's going around in your head constantly and the guilt and the regret and the, it, oh, it's so yeah. heavy in your life isn't it the guilt is a killer that and the shame but what do you do with that cc because i often say my fault is i i don't remember right and i did a post the other day but i was at my dad's partner's funeral 
And um, her daughter and son have had a whole life with my dad that I didn't really know about because they're not drinkers. And there were days out, there were Christmases, birthdays, him holding the grandkids. And I thought, God, all I ever did was nip in and out, say hello, do my mm. duty, have a cup of tea and a bit of cake. And like, right, I've got to go now, straight down the pub or straight home to open the bottle of vodka and that. And when I saw these pictures, it's like, I'm not in any of them. What does that mean? And the guilt, literally, it ate me alive, you know. Yeah. But then I had to turn it around and think, do you know what? I am, my dad is still there, and I do what I can for my dad now. He knows that. And I can't change that then, back then. What can I do with it? And sometimes part of sobriety is really accepting the past and, and it's what's made us who we are now. And now we're in a place where we can make a difference. Yeah. I mean, that rings so true to me. I mean, I like wrestled with this for years, the sort of like that guilt and shame about like feeling like I wasn't being there, like enough for my mom or then, you know, like weird stuff about, you know, how did I let myself get in an abusive relationship or how did I let my drinking get this bad or whatever, like all the different things. And when it came down to it, it was just like, well, I was doing my best at the time. Like that that was the best I could do. Like I couldn't have done any better. And also, like you said, acceptance. And like I said in the beginning, acceptance from a place of love. Like that is where all of the healing and the forgiveness and all that stuff has started for me. I mean, we all have stuff and things that we're holding on to, people that we need to forgive, including ourselves. But you can't even think about forgiving somebody including yourself until you can just like see the truth of the situation and just accept it and be like, okay, well, this is the thing. I wish I had behaved better or differently or done this thing or showed up to this place, but uh, I didn't. And I was doing the best I could and I don't live my life like that now. And like, and that's enough. And I like forgive myself for messing up. And, And I have done, I'm not carrying that stuff around anymore. And it's like, as soon as I was able to let that go, like everything changed. It is brilliant. I really couldn't have said it any better, actually. And I think that's going to help a lot of people because there's such a conversation around guilt and shame. And it's heartbreaking because we carry all these emotions. And as you just said so eloquently there, you're only doing the best you can at the time, you know, and that's all all you can do, really. Um, And if you aren't doing the best, you're only doing your best at the time. Do you know what I mean? Like, right. It's so important to recognize that and think, you know, like right now, I might look back in 10 years ago, I wish I'd done things differently then, but right here and now I'm doing my best. So that's all you can do. Yeah, exactly. And I think you're killing it. And, you know, I'm like, every once in a while, I'll like have a bad day or something. And I feel like whatever, or maybe start to feel guilty, give myself a hard time, like, oh, I should be doing more. I have, I have chronic pain. And sometimes I have really bad days. And like, it ties into the mental health stuff, and you start to spiral or whatever. And I'm like, oh, I had a couple of really bad pain days. And like, I spent a couple of days in bed, and I should have done these other things. And I had to reschedule this meeting. And I'm like, you, you were in a lot of pain. <laughs> yeah, you needed to take your medicine and lay down like that was the best that you could do. And I'm like, oh, so it's something that like I actively practice all the time. It's like, 
that sort of self-compassion and understanding and like, well, that was a situation and what you felt like you could do was rest and reschedule your meetings. So that's what you did. Good job. You looked after yourself, you know, like it looks completely different now. I never could have done that before. I was only just so mean to myself ever. But do you think that's back down to the self-worth, you know, like it definitely is in it for me. Um, I, I never used to put myself anywhere. And even now, like I think, do you know what? I've got all this to do, but all I want to do is get into bed and watch a bloody film. And and if I feel like that, I will. Like, because yeah, it's too. what I need, you know, and that's proper self-care. That's not all just run a bath and light some candles. It's like, do you know what? I want to take a couple of hours off now and, and turn the phone off and do bugger all because that will replenish me enough to be able to carry on what I'm doing. But if I just keep going on and on and on and on, then I'm going to crash and burn and I'm going to be no good to anyone, especially myself. Yeah, but it's intuitive, isn't it? Like you you get these cues from your mind and your body and you learn to listen to them. But in the beginning, like especially in early sobriety, like that's all new. You, you know, a lot of people are like, I don't even know who I am. Like, I don't know what cues my brain is telling me. You know, it happens through like through practice, through getting to know yourself and being able to say like, I feel really overwhelmed right now. Like, what is that? Like, am I tired? Have I drank enough water today? Like what's going on? Or have I just been going like pedal to the metal for months and I'm exhausted and I need to turn on my out of office on my emails for a week. And like, you know, the world isn't going to fall apart without me, <laughs> Like, you know, but you have to practice. It's like, it's like a muscle that, that you have to work on. Like, and then eventually it becomes like what you just said. You're like, I'm really tired and I just need to lay down for a few hours and then I'll feel better. But like, you have to practice that. You don't know that in the very beginning. Like if I just rest a little bit, then I feel better. You don't know what your thing is. You have to sort of figure that out and build that toolbox like you talked about. Yeah. I mean, I, I went on a retreat um, a few months ago and, and uh, it was a culture shock because there was no phones, no telly, no radio, nothing. And I sat there with my thoughts and it was agonizing. I didn't know what I was doing. I, I was like, this is, this is all on paper, absolutely beautiful. Mm-hmm. But it, it was like also almost torturous as well, because I was really, I forced myself into this position and it got to a stage that I came home in the end because I, it wasn't serving me. And that was okay mm-hmm. as well. I, I wasn't a failure thinking, do you know what? I can't do this three nights in this shack in the middle of nowhere. You know, um, I can't do it and I don't want to do it and I'm not doing it. And that's okay. Yeah. Not everything is for everyone. Like if one thing worked for each individual person, then we'd be able to give everybody the secret recipe to like, this is how you can do your recovery or sobriety or whatever. And this is what it will look like. And dun, 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 dun. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't work like that, but it's great to be able to try things and to have the opportunity to try things. I mean, like, you know, drunk CC is not going to be going on any retreats. Like, <laughs> you know, like I never would have done anything like that. So it's really cool that you can do that stuff now, even if it's not for you. Like at least you tried it and now you know. Uh, or, or I can, but n- not in the specified time I'm meant to. It's yeah. like recently I, I went to Cornwall and I got halfway through and thought, you know what, I, I, I'm done here now. It's fine. And I feel happy about a decision. And that's self-care. That's knowing your true authentic self rather than thinking, 
oh, well, I bet I had better stay because I don't want to upset anyone or whatever. You know, I, mm. I knew that I had my time there and I wanted to move on to do other things. And I, I came away from there. And I would have never have done that because I was always a people pleaser thinking about everyone else so I could have external validation for them to think I was all right when I thought I was a pile of crap myself, you know? Yeah. It, it's it's when we talk about sobriety it's not just about giving up alcohol it's about the the relationship you have with yourself what what you develop with yourself and that just grows and grows and grows i mean i i'm a completely different person now to three and a half years ago i don't recognize myself but do you know what i'm a lot bloody happier about who i am now compared to then because i had no self-worth or self-esteem or confidence but if you saw me walk in a room, CC, and it'd be like, da-da, here mm. I am, and whatever. But inside, I was just a complete dark shadow, you know. It was all an act, and it's that's, that's no way to live, is it? No, and you have to, like, give yourself the room. I mean, I think about it as, like, obviously getting to know myself, but I think about it as, like, becoming myself. Uh, because I think sometimes when people talk about authenticity and who you really are, uh, sometimes people can be really sort of like, well, who you are is like this person and then it's very stagnant, but actually we change all the time because we learn new things every single day. So we're a different person every single day. So authenticity is also being like open-minded, being willing to change. So when I think about like what sobriety has given me, I think it's like giving me the opportunity to like become myself. And I do more of that every single day. And it's like, much more exciting <laughs> than you did to have it like three shots just to go to work <laughs> yeah oh you you're infectious you know and you you just got the best laugh as well oh thank you you have you got a lovely giggle so where do you see yourself then in 10 years time what do you aspire to is that an interesting question Oh, that is kind of an interesting question. Well, I only have one dog now. I would like to have a lot more dogs <laughs> in 10 years. Um, I'd like to be uh, traveling, um, do some stuff, like take care of my grandparents and things, um, see my sisters more. And I'd love to be working like exclusively in like with what I do with, with right to heal with my community and like serving other survivors, um, other addicts, like it's so important to me. I feel like, like I said before, if, if I can help people, then that can make like what I've been through worth it. And that's why I love what you do and podcasts like this one and hearing other people's stories and, realizing that you're not alone and giving people a space where they like feel safe to work through all this stuff. It's like, it's absolutely what I'm meant to be doing. It's absolutely what I'm meant to be doing. And and if there's some sort of like destiny or purpose or some common thread that's like threaded throughout my life, like it's definitely led me here. That's definitely what I'm supposed to be doing. So just anything more in that space, like I don't see myself ever slowing down when it comes to that, because like the longer I do it, the more people that I can help. Absolutely. And I think you found your purpose in life because I can see how you help people. I think you're wonderful. I really do. Thank you. I think you're wonderful. So thank you. Thank you for sharing your um, story with everyone. And finally, how can uh, people find you and and, uh, find out about what you do? 
Uh, you can just go to ccreagan.com or like follow me on Instagram at ccreagan. It's like um, I've got loads of free resources and all kinds of stuff about my community and whatever. I have like a free Facebook group and all kinds of things. With- Amazing. Yeah, let's be internet friends. Yeah, yeah. And and before we go, there, there's you must have a Geordie accent. Like you must be able to say something. I know, I know, but let's round it off with that. Come on. That's so mean. I know. Go on. Oh, how are you, Ben? Oh, I that see. So I see. I see uh, why you didn't want to do that. I tried That's really hard super. just for you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Cece. It's been a real, real joy talking to you today. Oh, thanks. It's been a privilege to be here. Thank you for having me. Take care of yourself. Thanks, you too. Bye. Bye. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of One for the Road. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can now download my app, Sober Dave, on the Apple and Google Play Store. And on there, you will find lots of tutorials, tips and support to help you stop drinking. And there are also meditation audios, food plans and chat forums. You can also find me on Instagram at Sober Dave. Please remember to join me for next week's episode. But until then, thanks for listening and have a great week.